Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If scary movies give you dread, keep you up late night in bed, here's a podcast that will help raise your mind. We'll explain the plot real nicely, then we'll talk about what's frightening so you never to have a spooky time. It's ruined. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Ruin. I'm Hallie. And I'm Allison. This is a horror movie podcast. We ruin a horror movie just for you. Just for you guys. Hallie, how are you? Literally the exact same since we last spoke. Um, yeah, which was not long ago. <laughs> no, I wish I had anything interesting going on. I'm trying to, let's see. Nope, cataloging my, nothing. I think January, I'm just doing nothing. Yeah. Um, I'm watching Drag Race. I'm in a Drag Race oh, draft. Nice. Um, but I, I haven't watched any of it yet, so I'm losing money. Oh. And uh, You so, should watch it. <laughs> well, I don't have TV. I don't have like a— oh, Why did you join TV. this draft if you— <laughs> I wanted to—my I wanted to, my friends were doing it, and I wanted oh, to talk to them about it. participate. But then I'm going to start going to uh, a gay bar because they're screening it. So there's like oh, a bar where it's fun. like ending my Fridays alone at a gay bar watching Greg Race. But that sounds like heaven to me right now. Honestly, that sounds great. It feels like such a fun show to watch in public too. Yeah. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Um, not a lot going on yeah, here. Yeah, I'm sorry. We, I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't have stuff happening. Um it's January. I I'm eating a lot of cottage cheese. I'm I'm on that kick. I believe you've already spoken about cottage yep. cheese on the podcast recently. We, I'm like I'm like the ice bath for the face, the cottage like those are my kind of big notes for what I'm up to as we close this out is January. Devastating. Yeah, this we're is recording we gotta all. get out of the fucking house, man. This is tough. I know. I'm trying to think if I've like done anything or <laughs> seen anything. I like um all I watch I is mean, horror movies and stay home. So no, I don't Alyssa bought me a shirt oh, yes. with, ri- Thank with you. pictures Finally, of Thank you. Finally talk it. about it. Beautiful. So, Incredible. It looks like um kind of like a rapper band t-shirt. But do you want to be picture- buried in it, you think? You think I that? absolutely want to be buried right. in it. That is my my only request. Great. Upon my death, is that you put me in the Riz shirt before you put me in the ground? Well, um, I will fight your parents. I I don't know why I assumed you would die before them. I apologize, but I will fight them to make that happen. I don't. So I don't know why I'm either. Like, yeah, probably next six months. All of us. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Got a cool shirt, and then he like I put it down on the bed to take a photo of it, and he immediately jumped on it and laid on it, and I was like, "Do you know that's you?" No, nah, he, he doesn't know anything else. He does. I hold him up to the mirror and I scream, that's you, all the time. Okay, so that's what you're doing with your time. Okay, that's more like what I was thinking was going on. Okay, okay. how are you filling the days? Trying to understand if my pet has any concept of reflection. You know, if anyone's going to figure it out, it's you, I think. Yeah, but like cats think humans are just bigger cats, so I don't know if he's like aware of... Right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I can't tell if he's smart or dumb, but 
He is my perfect little boy. And that's and um and you're a he likes the shirt too. It's Riz approved. Um, Good. I'm so glad. So that's um. it. That's it. That's all I got. Hey, everybody. It's Hallie. And Allison. This is an ad for our February 25th live show. It'll, of course, be at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, as it always is. And you can get your tickets, as you always do, at moment.co slash ruined. That's moment.co slash ruined. And come and join us as Hallie ruins... Human Centipede 3, we thought. Look, it's Valentine's Day. Everyone's cozied up. Why not do something a little romantic? Yes, and if you are eager to listen to the first two, we did cover them for Patreon. Human Centipede 1 and Human Centipede 2 are on the Patreon, so you can subscribe to the tier where you get the extra episodes. And if you want to, listen to those before Sunday, February 25th, when we ruin Human Centipede 3 live. Though, I'm, I'm not going to lie, you probably could piece it together. If, if you yeah. just had to start on three, I think you'd be able to put the pieces parts. But yes. either way, please join us on the 25th, and you could uh, go get tickets at moment.co slash ruined, and we'll see you there. See you there. This week's movie um, is The Empty Man. It's part of a cold month, and the movie starts cold, and then we yes. move into sort of a rainy um, element. Okay. At the beginning, we are uh, absolutely in a blizzard. And this is Terrific. a movie that I had watched. It's actually, it is uh, two hours and 16 minutes. I am on the record and I will continue to be on the record as saying that a movie, especially a horror movie, does not need to be longer than 90 minutes. They almost never have to be. Some no. exceptions. I think the Suspiria um, remake uh, earned it. There's other movies, obviously, that are yeah, longer. Look, I mean, there are long movies that feel short and there yes. are short movies that feel long, but maybe we just start kind of trimming back these run times a little bit. Absolutely. And this movie ended up, I think, being sort of, uh, it came out and then it wasn't really getting, um, oh, that's what it was. It was uh, initially going to come out during, uh, on October 2020. So there's sort of a, oh, a pandemic uh, problem where uh, the film was released. Uh, it was a $60 million budget and it grossed $4 million. But I mean, Oof. any movie when they were, you know what I mean? Like, that was just a mess for any movie. And yeah. I do have a lot of, um, you know, sympathy. Written and directed by David Pryor. And um, a, a film, there's, on Wikipedia, they're like, it received mostly negative reviews from critics oh, and audiences okay. at the time. I actually ended up liking this. I will say, uh, and then, oh, then later it's saying that online, um, it got kind of more of a cult following. And I, I will I will um, defend this movie. Okay. It is too long. And so there were, I would say about an hour left, I thought, we have got to get this empty man out here. We have got to yeah. wrap this up with him. Um, so th- that being said, I did enjoy it. It is based, um, much like we just did 30 Days of Night, um, or that will come out later. Unclear. 30 Days of Night will be coming out before or after this, and yes. uh, which is also based on a comic book. This is also based on a comic book oh. uh, created by Colin Bunn and artist Vanessa R. Del Rey in 2014. And this, to me, I think that I would... Um, Love to actually read this comic book because I think that these uh, the elements that are brought up are expansive and complicated in a way mm. that something like a comic book that to me makes more sense. So like a yes. you know a narrative uh, where you could sort of play with different imagery and over a larger amount of written text versus yes. some guy named Garrett telling it to you in a whole you know monologue, which, which I enjoyed yes. as well. Sure, but um, yeah, so. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, reading this on the Wikipedia, is that, like, the in The Empty Man uh, comic book, it's framed a little bit differently. Uh, in the description of the comic book, it says, The so-called empty man disease 
causes insanity and violence. That's really interesting because it's not really, it, it, we approach it from a different angle, but it is the same concept, um, something that is communicable. And so okay. the empty man um, is you and me, Allison, and it is all of our listeners. So let us uh, get into it. Um, we always like to have Allison watch the trailer uh, to get her takes. What are your thoughts about the empty man trailer, Allison? Hmm. Even the trailer, a touch long. Um I mean, I did get a sense of, like, exactly what the plot is here, but I do love mm. anything that kind of centers on, like, an urban legend of, like, yes. calling someone into, you know, your presence. Absolutely. Um, Sign me up. As soon as I saw but, it, I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. Though I can I can see how it gets long just by the legend where it's like, the first day this happens, the yes. second day this, and it's like, oh, it should just, like, be like, you call him and he comes. Like, I don't yes. know that we need um, a week's worth of kind of buildup. But again, one of our some of our favorite, most famous films, uh, uh, The Ring. We have a seven day lead mm-hmm. up, and that they True. keep that moving. I'll tell you, they do keep it moving. But yeah, scare. Also, like the empty man, very scary phrase. Yes, what does it mean? So, and a man already scary. Yeah, and it'd be empty. Very scary. Um, I would also like to take a baseline scary. Um, and I'm trying to think of what to ask Allison that mm. is not giving away too much. Oh, I see. Um, because there's a lot in this, but it sort of unveils over time. Mm-hmm. Um, how scary do you find the concept of uh the collective unconscious? Oh. Very? Do you believe that such a thing could exist? Um, no, but it's a scary concept. Yeah. Like you're like, ooh, what if it did though? Like that's yeah. like the that's the like, boy, if that did exist, I would not be happy. I think it's one of those things. Like, I, 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 um, again, just on Wikipedia, but uh, the idea of like young and like the idea of archetypes. The problem ultimately, and we're seeing this, I think, in society now, is that like anytime you try to create an archetype or a concept, mm-hmm. you immediately start limiting, and at least in uh, Western society, immediately start like making a hierarchy out of things. Yes. So it's sort of like the idea of like archetypes of our society show up, you know, in our dreams or in our unconscious like ideas. That makes sense. But yes. the idea that like these are things that exist outside of like society as it exists right now that are somehow, you know, populated outside of our knowledge, that I don't think is super helpful because it's very, I think it's very societally specific. And obviously it's like, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a mother. Every society is a mother. Or like, right, yeah. There are some things that are that are truly universal, but for the right. most part, there are real lines between like, oh, we don't, that's not, yeah. we don't care about that. And I don't know. I just, I you know, I think uh, as, as all of us, as we all look at the hierarchies that exist in society today, um, there, I think there is a lot of like science or psychology being like, mm-hmm. well, here's how things are rather than mm-hmm. here's a story. We're trying to like use these elements to describe something, which mm-hmm. makes sense. And I think maybe that's was the intent for some people. But then it's like, don't come and then tell everyone all this when in reality it's like, or that's like, you know, what one psychologist who was a, lived in Switzerland, you know, yes. in the early 1900s thought about this, you know, not that we can't draw from it, but this is a lot about entering into a group and sort of like trying to decide how you feel about the group's ideas mm-hmm. and a group that is pretty clearly a cult and mm-hmm. sort of uh, our main character's interaction with it, um, which again, we also love. Uh, that's a really excellent idea for a horror movie. 
And then finally, would you like to guess the twist? And there is a proper twist at the end of this bad boy, Allison. Would you like to guess the twist in The Empty Man? Guess the twist. I mean, I'd love to guess, but it's like I don't have a ton Mm -hmm. of... um, Go with what you know. Okay, so it seems like you summon the empty man. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to guess that the people who, the, the group that ends up summoning him end up going with him to the other side of where, whatever the line between reality and, and it, like, it's, it, was, it was, like, proposed as a joke, but then they're like, no, we actually just wanted to, like, we're choosing this. Great. Know. No, I love it. That's perfect. We did a great job. I guess. We'll see. <clears throat> All right, let's begin ruining the empty man. Um, we open on the Ura Valley in Bhutan in 1995. And we hear at the beginning sort of this low singing uh, voice. We see four American white people, Greg, Fiona, Ruthie, and Paul, are hiking up the mountains in this valley. Gorgeous, beautiful forest. Mm-hmm. They wave at sort of a truck full of Buddhist monks as they drive past. They hike higher and higher, and they find a shrine with uh, Buddhist prayer wheels. And finally, they get to a rope bridge, which oh. I can, I, I, I not uh, unless, in a million years. And this one's very sturdy and looks very well maintained, but I, it's over a gigantic, terrifying ravine, Allison. I can't. Heights are like, yes, I concur. I'd rather like spend like a night in a coffin. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, you got to walk the across a rope bridge. My two fears, one, heights, two, and we've discussed this on the pod at some point, leaving a baby in a car, which is funny because I don't have a baby and I don't have a car. You don't have access to a baby. But there's something about that that is so terrifying to No, me. it is very, it's just like. Because it's an undoable, it's like if I get hurt, if I fall from a height, well, it's just me. You leave a baby me. in a car, you walk outside, it's like, oh, no, the baby. That's oh, no, the insane. Baby. Uh, oh, no, everyone in this, every, oh no, the movie. Everyone in this movie is braver than uh, than we are. So they cross the bridge. The bridge is fine, and we see on the screen day one. They climb higher and higher, and it's incredible views, mountains, forest, gorgeous. And they see in the distance a a storm coming in, and they said, "Oh, it's it's getting stormy. Let's climb back down." And basically, it's like they're five miles from the nearest town. Like they're they're in the okay. middle of nowhere. Um, Paul stops him and says, "Do you hear that?" And it sounds almost like a humming or a ringing, like a low tone. And he attempts to sort of follow it. They're on this flat rock surface at the top of one of the mountain okay. peaks. He walks across a rock face and he falls directly into a crevasse. You hate a crevasse. They all, the other three run over to him and they're like, are you okay, buddy? Allison, it is a jet black pit into the top no. of a mountain. He's probably no. not great. No. Um, but obviously they're pros. They wouldn't be doing this if they were not uh, hikers. Sure. So they're, they're Greg spelunks down into the darkness with their um, equipment. Paul is not at the bottom of the crevasse. Instead, at the bottom of the crevasse are a million little cave crickets crawling around, which is a disgusting but really excellent addition to this. Where I'm like, oh, there's yeah. bugs now. Great. Yeah, it's not just that you like fell and you're maybe injured and possibly stuck. Also, bugs. Yes. Greg sort of wanders into the adjoining cave. Elsie, he find he sees Paul sitting cross-legged, sort of at, at, at prayer, um, staring at the skeleton of a gigantic humanoid creature set into the wall. 
uh, sort of a fossilized real remains. skeleton. A real skeleton. This okay. person is 15, 20 feet tall. Oh. And we see wings oh, attached guy. to the back. So we see the bones of the wings. Okay. Great. Not a, Greg does not spend enough time freaking out about this, if you ask me. I that's all I'd be freaking out about. But he does ask a great question. What is this? Which I, yeah. it's a great question to start with. Um, he goes over to Paul, who looks nearly catatonic, but he whispers to Greg, if you touch it, you'll die. Greg's like, okay, well, let's get the fuck out of here let's then. Let's not touch it then. And he tries to help Paul up, but Paul's shuddering, crying. He's, he's, he's breaking down. And the girls are up top are calling for an update. So Greg has to physically carry Paul out. And the cave is so full of crickets. So you're hauling your, like, catatonic best friend out. Crickets everywhere. everywhere. And you just saw the body no. of a demon or an nope. angel or nope. an alien stuck into the wall of this ancient crevasse that maybe no one's ever been in for, like, 500 years, you know? They get back up. They pass over the rope bridge again, but the storm is coming in, and Greg has to physically carry Paul, like, over his shoulders, and it's very slow going to the point where they have to take a break, and Greg says, I don't know if I could do this. We're going to have to drag him or something. I, I can't carry him. Fortunately, Ruthie wanders over to look over the ridge and sees a little house, and they run over to it. It's obviously a house set up for hikers. So it's like there's a stove. It's it's they can make a fire and be warm, but nobody lives there. It's just like for people to stop in as they go hiking, which I feel like is a thing in Europe as well. Like I feel like a lot of places have that. America, mm-hmm. I feel like we don't have. We're not allowed to have that. We this no, is our society has is, a gun. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. You just go in there and immediately get shot. Um. So they go in and they take Paul inside, lay him down, and they sort of start to like check him, but there's no obvious problems. Um, and uh, Greg says, let's get his clothes off and let's look. He says, let's look for insect bites. But I was like, I would be much more likely to assume he had a head injury for the way he's been acting. Yeah. Insect bites. I mean, okay, like, yeah, sure. like, like that's a good thing to be like, as we move through this, let's also keep an eye out for that. But like, it wouldn't be my first guess. Allison, in Paul's clenched hand, he they finally find what looks like a, a a bone flute. So it's a piece of bone, sort of decorative ends, and uh, it's it looks like it's made of a human bone. And Paul is just clutched in Paul's hand. Hey. And they sort of um sort of put that aside to deal with that later. And Greg sees that Paul has sort of um you know like self harm marks on his wrist. Mm-hmm. And he asks Ruthie, well, how's Paul's been doing? And Ruthie, like, takes it to an 11 in a way where it's like, okay, so Paul wasn't doing well. Like, if you're, because it's like, if this was, like, you'd think you'd be able to talk about it. Or if this is from his past, it's like, well, yeah, like, he, you know, he's had depression or whatever. But she's like, he's been fine. It's like, okay, Okay. uh, not helpful right now. Meanwhile, Fiona goes to get water from a stream and sees the storm is, like, basically about to be on top of them. So they all argue when they get back, and Ruthie's panicking, sort of like, well, what if Paul hit his head? What if he needs he's internal bleeding? We have to go to the hospital. Greg says, there is a storm. We are five miles still from any road, and I can't carry him in a blizzard. He looks fine. He's breathing. He, you know, he's, let him sleep. I think we're going to be fine. Also, if he's not, there's something we could do about it. Correct. That night, um, uh, Greg and Fiona go and sleep in one of the other rooms. They all have sleeping bags and stuff, so they have, like, warm stuff. Okay. And Ruthie is sort of holding vigil for Paul, which I get to, like, just making sure nothing happens in the night. She picks up the bone flute and sort of absentmindedly blows across it like you'd blow across the top of a bottle. And it goes, Not great. Not a good move. And we realize that that was the sound 
that Greg heard Ooh. on the top of the mountain yes. that sort of drew him to the crevasse. She doses off Allison, and when she awakens, she hears someone walking outside the cabin. She goes to check on Fiona and Greg. They're fast asleep, and then the, wa- the walking seems to disappear. Mm-hmm. In the morning, it turns out they're completely snowed in. And on the screen, we see day two. Okay. So fortunately, because they had packed well, they have food, so they're able to cook and make a fire. So they're fine. Um, other than the fact that Greg has some sort of mountain madness or something. Yeah. They're okay, right? So Fiona and Greg, they get dressed and say, we're going to go check out, like, what it looks like. Can we get out of here? You stay here. We'll be back. Um, we also see there's a bunch of goats running around outside. That's so the goats fun. seem fine. Allison, it's, like, blizzarding outside and out the window. In a distance, Ruthie sees a figure approaching. Mm-hmm. She runs outside to be like, oh, do you own the house? Maybe you're from here. And you're like, right. oh, are you a local? Anything? Can you help us? Yeah. Yes. Allison, we see through the white that the figure is wearing a hooded dark shroud that billows in the wind. I mean, it's just, it's not a like, I'm here to help outfit. I, well, this is a, a, we haven't done a limerick in a while. Oh, hit me. If they're wearing a shroud, shit's gonna get loud. I like does that. Does that mean anything? No, but I we'll think do it. it does. So obviously, Ruthie start, stops and looks at this person. It's obviously a ghost or a spirit something. or something. And you could hear its footsteps crunching in the snow. So it is material. And then the figure starts running towards her. Mm-mm. And Ruthie's managed to get inside and locks the door. And then hears furious banging. And Greg and Fiona calling to her from outside the door. But of course, but they were asleep inside. Well, so no, they had gone to look at the ridge. Oh. So they are outside, but how do you know if it's them or not, right? Right. Versus, is this something using their voice? But she's like, fuck it. Opens the door. Thank God it's actually George and Fiona. But they do have bad news. They're completely stoned in. They literally can't get down the side of the mountain. Like, they're going to get in an avalanche. It's impossible. Ruthie starts screaming. It's like, we have to get out of here. I saw this thing in the snow. We're like, it'll be fine. We'll all stay together. uh, we, We didn't see anything out there. I... I think maybe we're just all really upset, and I understand that. So we'll get through it, and then we'll leave tomorrow, you know? Um, in the middle of the night, Allison, we get this terrifying shot. One of my favorite shots in the movie. where Ruthie's asleep, and we hear this, like, low whispering. Mm-mm. And then like we see that. Paul. Paul is up and crouched over her and is whispering in her ear while she's asleep. Frantically. No. Uh-uh. Ma- manically. I don't like that. Allison, when they all wake up in the morning, Paul is gone. His jacket is missing. Okay. And there are footsteps out into the white of the day. Luckily, it's not snowing anymore, but it's like, but it's still a ton of snow. snow. Yeah. Allison, day three. This is the thing is, if this happens to me, if I'm Paul, at this point, just leave my ass and you guys go. Yeah. Like, if I'm gone, just leave me. Just go. Truly. Don't, don't, don't Don't do what's about to happen. But of course, they follow the footsteps back to the rope bridge, which actually is in the right direction. So it's not, they're not losing time. Okay. And Paul is sitting, much like uh, Greg found him sitting uh, cross-legged in in the cave, and he is sitting at the foot of the bridge, blowing the bone flute. Ooh. Ooh. Greg, of course, freaks out. It's like, "What the fuck are you doing? You scared everybody." Um, yeah, what the fuck Fiona- are you doing? <laughs> but Fiona's trying to be nice to Paul, and it's like, "Well, so what's wrong, sweetheart?" And Greg and Fiona start going at each other. It's like. Everyone, please. The empty man is going to show up. We have to hold it together for Yeah, we haven't even gotten to the empty man yet. Yeah. Unfortunately, Paul looks up at Greg, and he's sort of whispering. 
And Greg sort of bends down to see what Paul's saying. And when he does, Ruthie takes out a knife. Okay. Stabs Greg and then slashes Fiona's throat before pushing both of them into the ravine. What the fuck? And we see Ruthie with the knife. And Ruthie's the the one who had blown on the flute, too. She blew on the flute. She blew on the flute and she saw the shrouded figure. Mm -hmm. And she turns back to Paul and they sort of make eye contact. And the image distorts for a second. And... And Ruthie allows herself to fall backwards into the ravine. Mm. And Paul then proceeds to continue blowing Um, the bone flute. Title card, The Empty Man, Allison. And I said, said, after seeing this, hell yeah, that's how you fucking do it. That's That's how how you start start a horror movie. Unfortunately, and I I still like the movie, but like, I was like, okay, great. We're going to be in the mountains. It's going to be snowy. Like, I was on board with all the touch points. Sure, sure. But we are now moving to 2018, and we are in Webster Mills, Missouri. And we are meeting our protagonist, James LaSombra, mm-hmm. who is a retired detective who now owns a security company, uh, like a small-town security company. Mm-hmm. We see him going for a jog. He lights up a cigarette. And I, I will say, I, this is a, a lot of bridges in in this movie. Okay. And I do love that because St. Louis is a very, like, there's a ton, like, it's a bridge town. Yeah. Like, there's a river, beautiful river. A lot of bridges. That, yeah. And so uh, I did appreciate the bridges, bridges motif and then a lot of bridge scenes mm-hmm. that were all That's uh, nice. beautifully done. Um, but as he runs these smokes, he's haunted by a woman's voice. A woman's voice saying, where were you? Where were you? We see him go to his security shop. This woman's like trying to buy pepper spray. He's like, let me get you this other one. It's cheaper and it works better. You don't have to shake it. Okay, because when you're in those moments, you're not going to want to shake it. You're not going to remember. We see he like makes keys. He installs security cameras. He does it all in this town. He also uh, goes uh, to a Mexican restaurant and just starts taking shots of tequila alone uh, after after getting lunch. And we see him. He takes out a birthday coupon. It's his birthday, and he's drinking alone. And he gives it to the waitress for the meal. And uh, he's like, I, I just want to use this, and then here's the tip. Take the tip, yeah. you know. And as he's sitting there, the waitress comes back with all the wait staff, and they give him a piece of birthday flan, no. and they sing happy birthday, and he's humiliated. Birthday flan. I did make me want birthday flan. I do like flan. James drives home. He gets the mail. And he sees in his backyard Amanda, who's a teen girl from his town. And he says, how's your mom doing? So there's obviously something something in the past with, um, uh, sorry, with James and Amanda's mother. And she says, my mom sent me to come check on you. It's, you know, we know it's like almost the year anniversary. So we find out the reason that they've kind of... uh, been bonded to one another. They'd known each other before, but last year, Amanda's father, so her mother, you know, her mother's name is Nora. So Nora's husband uh, died right around when James's wife and son, Allison and Henry, also died in a car accident. So two families uh, decimated by tragedy and brought together by grief. Um, so he's sort of like a paternal figure in Amanda's life, you know, mm-hmm. not not full on stepdad, but you know, someone who's around that she feels comfortable talking to him. Unfortunately, and I think what's sad is like this has happened, like this conversation with a loved one before, where you know, and he's like, you know, it's been a year, and like it's been really hard, but she tells him, I found something so wonderful and so freeing, and it's helped me to realize that nothing can hurt you. Because nothing is real. Mm. It's like, oh, it's a cult, isn't it? Mm. And Very it's interesting, culty. like, what themes that emerge about the cult. Because, like, it's obviously Scientology. Yeah. But there's also, like, it's a critique of, say, Buddhism. or It's a critique of all religion. But it's like, 
it is also, I think, playing on these ideas of like the collective unconscious. But she's come over like, actually, you don't have to be sad that your whole family fucking horribly died in, on a snowy night uh, because nothing is real. It's like, well, and James is like, well, you know, a lot of things are real. And she says, well, how could you know that? And, and James says, well, I had to learn the hard way. It's like, well, you, yeah, yeah like. I'm alive. What is real, sure, right. uh, in some sense. But otherwise, it's like, yeah, we all live in the world and we see things that happen. I yeah, don't know stuff happens. You know? Yeah. And she says, well, you know, you know, like the power of positive thinking. It's like, what we think about with repetition and intention, we manifest. He's like, okay, I've, we have heard of the secret. But she says, what if those thoughts didn't come from us? What if those thoughts came from somewhere else? And it could give us like these like mm-hmm. important, powerful, singular thoughts. What if there's a way to get thoughts from somewhere else? Just then her mom leaves. James doesn't even get a chance to reply. Yeah. And she says to James, uh, can I tell my mom I saw you? And he's like, that's totally fine. So clearly there's some connection between James and Nora, okay. but they are on the outs. So they're no longer in communicate. Um, and it's been a rough year for everybody. So, you know, we'll find out what happened. Um, and James says, thank you for checking in on me. And Amanda leaves. We go up to bed. He's also drunk. Like, every night we yeah. see him, he's obviously been drinking for hours alone. And we hear his wife, well, we now know is his wife, Allison's voice, saying, where were you? And we see a flash of them together in the park and uh, then a flashing police light. We get shots of, like, a dangling rosary from a rearview mm-hmm. mi- window, sure. referencing a car accident, obviously. Um, he goes and takes his medication, um, Dexapin, uh, which I believe is anti-depressant. Um, uh, but look, I mean, if your whole family dies in a car accident, oh, they used to treat anxiety or depression. Oh, so, oh yeah, and insomnia. Well, it's quite a water drug. We're not being paid. It's just they show the labels. Up. That's, yeah. I, I looked it up. Yeah. Um. So uh, he's obviously medicated. We see his wedding ring is in the medicine cabinet. Mm. We also see on the screen, Allison, day one. Uh, over at their place, Amanda's mom Nora calls up to Amanda. You got to eat. I'm taking you to school. So she's like as junior or senior, like older in high school. She says, come down here, please. She goes up to her daughter's room, which has an ensuite bathroom. She walks into the bathroom and gasps. We see her call James. James arrives. Nora shows him. Amanda is gone. And written on the blood on the mirror in blood, it says, the empty man made me do it. Oh, boy. They call the police. The police arrive. They take sample statements. We see that the image of a seated praying man, which we've already seen in 1995, sort of reoccurring. She has a lot of artwork where she's drawn the seated praying man. Okay. And the cops are like, oh, wait, James. Yeah, you used to be a cop, right? I heard about you. You're out of the force now, huh? So good thing you could call us. Just cop bullshit. Yeah. And so they start trying to ask Nora, like, how Amanda was doing. And Nora, of course, does the same thing which we already saw Rufy did, which, like, it's perfect. Our relationship's perfect. Amanda's doing great. It's like, yeah. you don't have to do that. She's gone. Yeah. Like, but it is hard. I mean, in the past, like, they would just tell you that she disappeared. I mean, like, I'm sure they are like, run away. And so she doesn't want to admit that, which I totally understand. But, you know, it, what recently, Amanda was crying in class and the school did have to call Nora. But also her dad died. It doesn't seem that crazy to be like, a teenager is really emotional one day. Yeah. That's normal, right? Yeah. It also like stress of school. But they tell her, look, technically, okay, so Amanda is 18. So technically she's legally an adult. And she did appear to take her suitcase. So, and what they're, what they're about to say is, so we're not really going to do anything. Mm. Nora, of course, flips out and was like, she is my child. She wouldn't have left like this. We weren't fighting. It wasn't like that. And the cops say, we'll see what we could do. The implication would be like, we're, we're not, not going to do much. anything. Meanwhile, we see one of the other cops is going through Amanda's diary. 
And he sort of whispers to the other officer talking to Nora and who asks her, um, do you have any pets? She says, no. The cops are like, oh, that's fine. No reason we just want to ask. Meanwhile, James then takes a look at Amanda's diary because he's there, you know, kind of checking out the room as well. And he finds a flyer for the, for the Pontifex Institute, which again, I immediately connect. I assumed it was Scientology, Scientology. right? And he sees written in her diary, he's here, he's there, he's every fucking where. And he asks Nora, who's he? And she's like, I don't know, like, Amanda does a lot of poetry and stuff. Like, I always assume it's her dad. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when you read that, it's like, that could be your dead father. Like, you know, 100%. you're working through some stuff. And uh, the cops leave eventually and say they'll be in touch. And Nora says, like, why do they ask about pets? And James says, well, I think they they think maybe that the blood on the mirror isn't human. They think it might be animal blood. Oh. And I'm like, I guess that's better because a human wasn't injured, but also, oh, no. Oh, no. And Nora lights up. Everybody smokes in this movie, and it looks so goddamn good. Which it's is another like thing. Such I'm a like, oh. good horror movie. Like, yeah, it tells you all about like where someone's at. Yes, like absolutely. Like, yeah, everyone's like where it's like okay, got it. Know where they're going. Like know what their whole deal is. Yeah, it's either these two whose like uh, daughter or surrogate stepdaughter has disappeared, or you see people in the cult we eventually meet yeah. up with who are, they're in a cult, so yeah. they're out smoking all the time. Yeah. Um, and James is like, look, I used to be a cop. Their theory is Amanda is distressed. You guys had a fight. She's acting out to hurt you, but she's probably going to just come back and be fine. Mm -hmm. Which actually is, I read this thing where it's like, that is what happens most of the time. Like, but it's just like, you just don't know. Right. Right. And if it's the, it's that, if it's that small percentage of the time, that's not it, then it's like a tragedy, you know. Exactly. And then, you know, so Nora says, they aren't going to do anything. We both know it. So I'm going to need you to do it. Would you essentially be a private investigator and find my daughter? Okay. Allison, I got to ask, what would you do at this point? What would you do? And I'm going to clarify. I'm not saying if you were James. I'm saying if you were Al- if you were Allison Leiby, what would you be doing? Mm. Would you take this on? No. <laughs> I would, but with you, like, just so you know, I will be murdered by a cult by the end of this. Yeah. Like, I, would, like, I will be thrown in a ravine. I know that. I mean, I guess it would be like, it would be something to focus on. You know? Uh, you're right. Just get you out of your Sometimes, house. Sometimes, like, having, like, a specific task can kind of, like, shake you into mm-hmm. a good place. But I don't think that's that that's really what happens here. Um, No, but I mean, optimistic. I really like that. that yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Like, that, you know, it's like, oh, giving you purpose in life and, like, giving you something to kind of, like, spend your waking hours thinking about. Like, yeah, yeah, I guess I would just to kind of be like, what else am I doing? Yeah. Absolutely. Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must-listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue... 
panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. So James takes it on. Obviously, he, he's connected to this family, so he's going to try to find Amanda. So he goes, he has Nora give him, him a list of her closest friends. And he goes outside the high school, and when he sees one of them, Devara, uh, coming over, she, he says, oh, are you friends with Amanda? Can I talk to you? Because um, everyone knows that she's missing now. It's all over mm-hmm. school. And Devara says, can I have a cigarette? <laughs> he says, yes, you can sit in the car. And so he sets his phone to record. So he's always recording everything, which is smart. And so she sits in his pickup truck, and they smoke, smoke a cigarette, and he says, well, you know, uh, Nora said that she was really upset and crying the other day in class. And Devara says, um, she wasn't crying in class. She was screaming. That's what they, the, the cops came and already talked to them to us about it. And I told them she was screaming. Meanwhile, Devar keeps looking out the window, like really scared, nervous. We see like other kids looking in the window. We're not sure who exactly she's looking at. Um, she's like, look, every, cops already came. I told them everything I know. I don't know where she is. And James says, well, in that case, could you tell me something about the empty man? And she's like, some story started going around that if you went to a bridge after dark, you found an empty bottle. If you blew into it, and you thought about him, something would happen. And he says, so did you do that? And Devara says, two days ago we did. Okay. So we see Amanda and Devara. And we're on one day, day. T- like, we... So this is day one for James. It'd be day two okay. for uh, Amanda. So she's a day ahead of him. Okay. Much like the ring. Like, it's like, people are kind of staggered. But, um, yeah, so it's day two for Amanda. She's disappeared. And day two, to remember, well, we'll get into it, what, what those different days mean. But, um, basically, uh, Devara tells us that she and Amanda went with their other friends, Lisa, Duncan, Meyer, and Brendan, and that bitch Jillian, Ugh. who we can't stand, which I, I appreciated that. They go to the bridge. And they, like, go down under the bridge, which I would not do this shit, but I, obviously you're a teenager, you're doing whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, you could pull a manhole up and then get into, like, a utility catwalk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm yeah. assuming they go down there to, like, give each other blowjobs or whatever. Yeah, it's not for um, me, but, like, I get right, it. Right, exactly. You're just smoking weed down there. Yeah. So they, the, most of them crawl back up, and uh, Amanda and Brendan are talking, and, and Amanda tells Brendan, like, she tried to commit suicide after her dad died. Um, she's like, yeah, look at my scars. And then she goes, psych, these are just scars from when I rollerbladed into a play glass window. Oh my God. And they're like, oh, and she says, you know, if I ever were to kill myself, I'd, I'd do it the proper way. As they walk across the bridge, Allison, Amanda spots a bottle and she's the one who explains the empty man legend. She says, you know, the first night you'll hear him coming for you and you can't stop thinking about him. The second night you'll see him following you and on the third night, he finds you. Devara and Jillian both want to leave. I was like, Jillian might be a bitch, but she's right about this. No, one. she's, she's correct. Like, I don't she want to should do this. definitely leave. Yeah. But Duncan grabs the bottle and blows, and then everyone kind of peer pressures each other to do it. Devara's the last one. She's like, this is bullshit. This is stupid kid stuff. But of course, they're like, oh, if it's kid stuff, then why are you afraid of it? And she goes, who? And then, like, just hands it, like, just a little <laughs> teeny who, which is very funny. And then That'd be me, the- like, peer pressured into, like, Summoning a Do, demon. Yeah, summoning a demon. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, she then gives the bottle to Amanda, who has already done it, but then goes again and sits in the middle of the bridge and blows on the bottle again. 
clearly hoping it's actually real. Yeah. And she whispers, the empty man, the empty man, starts thinking, thinking about him. And they all sort of stare into the darkness. The end of the bridge is just a footbridge. So, like, the end is total darkness as it goes into the forest. And the wind starts blowing. And they hear in the darkness a distant rattling sound. The sound of a bottle falling over. And then footsteps running towards them. No. Serpent hauls out of there, at least. They escape. And uh, they all go home. And now that she's in James's car, Devar tells him, at the mall the next day, I saw Amanda whispering to Brandon. So, this was yesterday. She's like, I saw Amanda whispering to Brandon much like how we saw Paul whispering in Ruthie's ear. Like, just oh. this, like, and Devara saw that and was scared. But again, she's a teenager. She's like, I didn't know, what, I didn't, like, say anything to her. I just, right. like, walked away. Meanwhile, we see her looking out the window, and we see five kids sitting cross-legged, praying on the sidewalk. No. And she gets out and gives him the other kids' addresses uh, and says, oh, this is where Brandon lives, and walks off, clearly terrified. Um, he then, James then goes to Brandon's house. Allison, Brandon is also missing. Not great. He goes to Lisa Schwartz's house. No one's home. Or are they? No, they're not. But the TV is on. It's playing Spartacus. And one of the characters says, what did he say? The God is coming? A new God? So I appreciated that little, you know, sprinkle. Um, he goes into, because nobody's home when the door is open. He goes to Lisa's bedroom. She also has, like, pamphlets from the Pontifex Institute. Okay. And it says, would you like to see the world in a whole new way? No. And he goes in the backyard and he finds that Schwartz's dog has been murdered. It's throat cut. So that's where we got the, that's the, where the animal blood. blood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, James calls Nora and says, okay, so all of Fre- Nora's friends are also missing. Except for Dar- Devara. Mm. She's, you know. And uh, and then I was like, well, we'll get to Devara. Uh, and, she, and he asked her, did Amanda ever bring up the Pontifex Institute? But Nora says, no, I don't even, I've never heard of this. And he's like, okay, well, I found it. I'm going to investigate it. Thinking naturally, it's like, okay, great. Uh, due, due to the grief with her father, she and these kids found out about this thing, and now they're, like, getting sucked into a cult, which unfortunately has happened and, like, does happen when people are in crisis, you know? Yeah. James goes down to the footbridge where uh, the summoning took place to sort of check it out and see, like, if there's any evidence about where they all might have gone. And he walks across a bridge. Allison, he picks up a bottle. And he absentmindedly just blows across it. Is that like a natural, like, would you That's what the movie suggests. I would never pick a a dirty bottle off the ground. I I certainly wouldn't put it up to my mouth. Put it near any of my soft apertures and blow on it to what end? And then also, you are required to think of the empty man, but I'm assuming he is if he's doing it. It's like, oh, this process is making me think of him naturally. Okay. Allison, as soon as he does it, all the sound in the movie cuts out. Whoa. So no insects, no distant train, no birds, and then it returns. But for one split second, clearly Silence. something has happened. Okay. He finds the manhole where we saw the kids climbing out of, and he opens the manhole and he climbs down onto the utility catwalk, and he finds all of Amanda's friends dead, hanging, having hung themselves from the bottom of the bridge. Oh my God. And written on a beam across their bodies, it says, the empty man made me do it. Wait, why are we assuming that they've hung themselves? Just that they've been hanged, not like... They've been hanged, you're right. We It appears to be suicide, but we don't know yet. Okay. We have no evidence yet about what actually happened. So he calls the cops, they come to pull the bodies up, and they're also, like, dredging the water, being like, did Amanda fall? Like, was she also there? And, like, maybe she fell off of here? No Amanda. Obviously, everyone in the town is devastated, like, this horrible thing. They're trying to figure out what's happening. And James takes out the Pontifex flyer, and his knee, nose starts bleeding. Mm. 
Not so great. he's constantly returning to, like, he's having nosebleeds throughout the uh, movie. We then see Devara at a spa, which sounds heavenly. I would love to be at a spa right now. And she undresses and goes into, into, into the steam room. And I will say that is the one thing, as a teenage girl, I would not have done. Like, there's no one else there, so maybe I would have done it mm-hmm. totally nude. But, like, the way she does it, I was like, she's still a teen girl. You'd still be like, yeah. is anyone in here? You know, like, um, I'll have my towel. Like, there'd be a level of, like, yeah, you know what I mean, self-consciousness. Yes. Unfortunately, Allison, as the steam fills the room, a hooded, shrouded figure appears and approaches Devara. And before she could even react, it lifts a pair of scissors and stabs her in the face over and over again. Look, there's a lot of ways you can die. I don't want that to be how I do. (laughs) Top five ways I don't want to die, stabbing myself repeatedly in the face with scissors. scissors. I agree. Um, unfortunately, when we cut to what's really happening, Devara is stabbing herself in the face. So in her mind, she is seeing the she's shrouded being, figure. Yes, but she's, in reality, in fact, she's... Exactly. Okay. Uh, she collapses, dying, and the, the hooded figure uh, closes her eyes, right? So down at the station, James is talking to one of the detectives. Detective uh, Villiers, I'm going to say, or Villiers. Sure. Um, and who tells him Devara also is dead. So everyone except Amanda is dead from that friend group who okay. was on the bridge that night, except Amanda is still missing. Okay. And the detective says, we think it was a suicide. She stabbed herself in the face. And James says, people don't die that way. Like, that's not that's the way not you a take way your own that life. We, that's insane. Yeah. And the detective says, exactly my point. Like, we know this is fucked up. We know something is happening. But then they're like, is it a cult thing? Like, and uh, spoiler alert, it is attached to a cult, obviously, but, but they don't know about the shrouded figure. We have a little more intel at this point. Mm-hmm. So James leaves, and uh, the detective tells him— Oh, before James leaves, the detective tells him three weeks ago in Maryville, a woman fed her infant to a pack of stray dogs. What the fuck? Claiming claiming that the baby was whispering to her. And in the kitchen, she wrote, The empty man made me do it. And we found the same written on the tile next to Devara's body in her own blood. So needless, he's like, okay, so needless to say, he's the detective is thinking it's a serial killer. Yes. So he's like, we got to catch this bastard. That's like you the know, first he, logical thought. Yes, absolutely. Like the empty man, you know, it's a Ted Bundy, whatever. Sure. This guy's like wiling out. But he's like, the thing about catching, even if we catch this guy, like we'll never solve these kinds of crimes because they, like there is no logic to them. Mm-hmm. He's like, we can't indict the cosmos. Like that's the problem is like we can catch an individual who's doing evil things or like bad things. But what creates this is something out of our control, which I think is an interesting point. And kind of what I think um, Twin Peaks is about. Like, it's sort of like the mm. uncontrolled. We, yes. we try to talk about good and evil because we don't understand both the cosmos, but also ourselves, why we yeah. do certain things. So, but he's like, we got to find this guy. This guy's out here killing people and making people feed their baby to the devil or whatever, or to dogs. Um that night, James listens to his recording with Devara, and he looks at the uh, Pontifex Institute. No surprise here. He finds the Wikipedia. It says on the Wikipedia article that it is a doomsday cult. And on the page, the content index says, and here are the entries, opposition and controversies, history of the Pontifex Institute, cave outside Agaba, Jordan, the Ura Valley, Bhutan, the move to St. Louis— the Pontifex Society and the Occult, which I did think was funny. It's like, we're in Jordan, we're in Bhutan, and then, baby, we're in beautiful St. Louis. Louis. See you in St. Louis, a cult that is calling to the uh, empty man. 
uh, we also see a section called Incident in the Missouri Woods. And I did like how they did this because it reminded me of, you know, within Blair Witch, you have sort of like the other stories. Yes. Like, you know, the incident at uh, Coffin Rock. Right. Like, if that's not the inciting incident, but like the idea that like this is not. There a, are related yeah. crisis, cat- catastrophes. Yeah. Um, and so this one. In 1991, six young men murdered each other, and the last one uh, died by suicide, uh, in a cabin in the woods in the Mark Twain National Forest in an attempt to allegedly manifest a tulpa. Now, have you heard of a tulpa before, Allison? No. I feel like this was like a sort of a— back when conspiracy theories, like cryptids were just getting started, yeah. there were a lot of tulpa talk. I have never heard that word before. So it has, it, it, luckily in the movie, he looks at it on Wikipedia. I'm like, this guy, I like the cut of his jib. This is what exactly what I mean. He doesn't even go to your local library. He's just looking at Wikipedia, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I which, appreciate. You know what? That's all we need. Yeah. And then written, he sees on the back of Amanda's Pontifex flyer, it says the word Tulpa. So I'm like, she's like, okay, so he, she was involved in this. So uh, basically, according to the Wikipedia article in this movie, a Tulpa, which is a concept taken from Tibetan Buddhism, is the idea that you could create a materialized being in the real world typically a human, Mm -hmm. created through spiritual practice and intense concentration. So they do that like the human mind can manifest a person or an entity or a creature just by thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the equation on Wikipedia is thought plus concentration plus time equals flesh. Now, of course, um, that's an interesting concept. And in this movie, we're taking it literally. Yes. Right, I'm like I'm sure I'm sure within uh, Buddhism that's you know there's nuances yeah, 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 yeah. to the this idea is like, that that's what yeah. it means. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're taking it much like I mean like Catholicism and the and the Exorcist. Like we are lit. The devil is literally here. Yes. Um, Nora calls him just to check in, and she says, "Actually, I'm outside. And I got dinner." So as soon as she walks in, she's holding dinner. She just bursts into tears. And haven't we all had those I mean, uh, entrances into our friends and loved ones' homes? And she's crying, and she's like, I'm sorry, I'm crying. And he says, you don't have to apologize. Like, And she says, I do. I'm sorry I haven't seen you so, in so long, and I'm sorry about the circumstances about why I haven't seen you. But, of course, we are not. We don't know all of it. We don't know those. Yeah. But clearly, they're close. They were closer. They ha- There's an estrangement. Mm-hmm. We're trying to figure it out. Um, so she asks if she could stay the night, and he balks. And she says, okay, boundaries. So he is the one okay. setting up the boundaries, right? Um, we see Allison. Oh, sorry, Allison. We see James drinking again heavily, staggering to bed without Nora, <laughs> and uh, he hears Allison, his wife's voice again, saying, "Where were you? Where were you? Where were you?" And we also hear Devara telling us again the first night you hear him, and we see flashes of his family in the car accident, and we see Allison, his wife, looking into the back seat. And there's a constant motif of uh, his son, Henry, like hitting a quarter against his teeth, which would have been, it would have made my parents go insane. Yeah. You can't be doing that. But we kind of hear the clinking of no, the, the quarter against his tooth, sort of as like a motif in certain scenes. So again, just like literal uh, things that I appreciate them sort of weaving into like these larger mm-hmm. sound, mm-hmm. you know, I, I appreciate the care. So, um, you know, uh, James jerks awake, at 3.03 a.m. to hear footsteps walking through his house. And I wrote, it's 3 a.m., the topo's lonely. <laughs> lonely. Um, no. He slams his bedroom door <laughs> as the footsteps get closer and closer, and he grabs a bat. Okay. And he finally flings over the bedroom door, and of course, there's no one there, but his front door is standing wide open. I don't like it. No. 
And so he goes in the morning, wakes up, he takes his medication. We see his wedding ring there again. And there's a certain moment of like, oh, am I imagining this? Like, am I, is this stress? What's happening? We, of course, see on the screen as he gets into his car as day breaks, day two. He's listening to a radio report about the dead teenagers. He's, you know, everyone in town is talking about it. Obviously. And he drives into the big city, St. Louis, where uh, the Pontifex Institute has a building. And it's very Scientology. He walks in. There's like a very robotic blonde receptionist um, who gives him a clipboard. And she says, you know, we were established in 2013, but what we can offer you is as old as time itself. James like, okay, great. I'll go ahead and fill this out. Thank cool. you. Thank you. So he goes and sits down to take a personality assessment, which again, I'm, I, again, I'm not saying it's one-to-one Scientology, but when but, I think of like you go in to get assessed, yes, it's yeah, Scientology. That's a very Scientology thing. Oh, sorry. And so he has to answer yes or no to certain statements. I'm going to read some of them, Allison. Can you tell me yes or no? Okay. okay. Yes or no. Life itself is a kind of disease. No. <laughs> okay, great. The brain can itch. Yes or no? I mean, maybe. Okay, that you, you have to pick one. Um, yes. Okay, great. Um, suicide is a form of thought control. No. Um, the entire universe is an erogenous zone. Yes. Well, I think it's interesting because, like, this is not a sexy movie and no one has— Like, it's not— Like, sex beca- it, it comes up a little bit, but, but it's, it's not, not like, like— a sexy movie. We've done some well, sexy movies. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, okay, now okay, we're, this is, this a, is a, a cult that fucks. Something. But, no, it's, but it's, yeah. not, it's like, nah, it's just a random— All right. Yeah, and then an infection is a blessed event. No. Allison, we turn the page, we see even more. Um, the scientific method is a tool of oppression— no. <laughs> and here's where we get into, there's actually a number of prompts that I think are just fully transphobic. Yeah. Like, one of them says, science says the genders are discreet. Yeah, that feels transphobic. And then I went, uh, menstruation is no basis on which to determine gender. And then finally, and I'm going to stop you right here, Podvex Institute, a woman is just as likely to have a penis as a man. And I was huh? like, well, apparently I'm on the other side of some of these things in the tulpa. I, you're telling me that you're going to conjure an empty man from some sort of, like, other dimension of knowledge, and that guy's going to be transphobic when he gets here? Yeah. Unacceptable. It seems unlikely. Come on. Yeah, you're beyond thought, beyond time, beyond the human body, and but you're going to be transphobic still, like, hung up it? on, like, a gender binary? The next page, Allison. True or false, rational thought is deadly. False. An individual mind is a single cell in a large consciousness. False. See, I think that's not literally true, but it is figuratively true. Figuratively so like, true, yes. But well, like literally. Well, collective. Exactly. Yeah, no. Everything is permissible. No. <laughs> to give myself to something larger would be completely fulfilling. I, not completely. And finally, until a civilization has fallen, it has not yet served its purpose. I mean, this is a really whack way of looking at the world. <laughs> I was like, we'll find out soon, America. Yeah, yeah, this yeah is we're kind of like, headed there. Is this America? And this is, exactly. I would say, like, being online, you know, as we all have to be, some of the, the fact that we have uh, things that I think are, like, sort of edgelord, libertarian ideas, and then just full-on transphobia, uh, well, it just puts me in the mind of, like, what's interesting about this is, like, I do feel like there is some sense in, like, the terror of this movie is the idea that we are going to go beyond 
like all boundaries, go move beyond our right. sense of like what is real. And there is something where people think of that, think of transgender people, not as like a part of the simple natural variety as the animals we are as a species. Yeah. Like every fucking animal has right. on the God. It has, and you know I mean? Like we are seeing ourselves rather than seeing ourselves as like an insane project that we have to control. Yeah. And again, you see how, Society is affected by this in all this different way. Like we have to be punished back into these roles. Yes, and and like and so the scary thing is like, what if you thought too hard and reality didn't? You know, reality came apart. It's like grow up. What are you thirteen? Yeah. Your first philosophy class? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, anyways, grow up, empty man. Anywho, James goes up to the reception desk and says, "What is this?" And she says, "The first step on your spiritual journey." And she said, he says, no, no, not the not the um, assessment. I get that part. I'm from San Francisco. I mean, what's this? And we see on the clipboard is the same image from Amanda's room of the uh, seated man praying. Okay. Great. So he's like, so what? He's like, oh, honey, I'm from San Francisco. You don't have to worry about that. I get this all mumbo jumbo. I'm, that makes sense We're to good. me. But this right, image. what is this? Yeah, what does the image mean? Um, but she doesn't have a chance to answer. The next seminar is about to begin. So James and a bunch of other people who were sort of like wandering off the street or were interested, they're ushered into a lecture hall. And then surrounding the lecture hall are sort of like, um, what do you call them? They're like little booths where you sit up, like um, box seats. They're box okay. seats with actual cult members who are in the cult who are all wearing beige suits. They're all like really done up and like um, well-polished. And then like the floor seats are from people who are just here to hear about what yeah. this is about, you know? Um and so we also see as they walk in, and, we, and James does not clock it, that there's a painting of the house in Bhutan where our original, our original four characters were staying. And I guess if he had seen it, it has no meaning to him. Right. But we are now meeting the founder of the Pontifex uh, Institute, and that is, of course, the cult leader Arthur Parsons— um, and he is giving his speech. And again, oh, he's played by Stephen Root, who's great in Oh, everything. I love Stephen Root. Right, he was just in Barry. I will always think of him as Milton from I'll Office Space. Milton from Office Space. And this does feel like where Milton could end up next, leading a cult. Um, and he tells them, great news, everyone. There is nothing you have lost. More than that, there is no such thing as loss. And there's a the thing, it was like, I disagree with the uh, assessment, but I also disagree with this, where it's just sort of like, yeah. we we deny the concept of right and wrong. There is no right and wrong. It's like, yes, yeah, obviously sure. we all agree that we shouldn't go, like there are certain boundaries, that's one of them. There is our concept of right and wrong. But he says, it, all there is is the great binding nothingness of things. We were all one. Once we were all one, we will all be one again. And this message comes to you directly from the empty man. So, of course, James is like, oh, the empty Ooh. man came up. All right. And he, he, beck he says, the empty man beckons you to discover the true face of the world. And all the newbies clap, and then the suited cult members clap, and they, like, stomp their feet um, up in the box seats. Afterwards, everyone gets to meet Arthur, like, shake his hand. People want autographs. Again, like, um, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah, yeah. And James approaches and says, so what is the empty man? And Arthur breaks down the cult's philosophy to the best of his ability for this film. Okay. So basically, he says, in the same way that humans breathe air from the atmosphere and eat food from the biosphere, we also receive thoughts from the noosphere, which is what they call the sum of all collective thought. So the idea is like they think that if you focus and meditate, you will be able to access these thoughts 
that exist outside of you, but you could use, and they could be really helpful to us. And he says, the empty man ritual is a meditative practice to allow you to sort of drop ideas from the noosphere. And he said, basically, the cult's ultimate goal is to move, to to, to uh, erase the line between form and flesh. So they want to be able to manifest real things using thought. Okay. And his example of this, which again is like, we need to do a Pontypool, a really excellent movie if you're listening to this. Because um, it's also about like language and thought and sort of the breakdown of both. And so Arthur's pitch or way to describe this is like, you know when you say your name enough times it loses all meaning? That's actually true of every thought. Okay. So you could actually lose, a, again, look at society. It's like, you could think anything. Sure. And then uh, you convince yourself it's true. Alternately, you could think something true and then you lose the truth of it. If you, you know, you could also lose that. Yeah. And he quotes Nietzsche was saying like, when you stare into an abyss, it stares into you. And I wrote, sounds like my Friday night. No. Um, he says that's, people have said that so much, it sort of seems like a cliche. But let's think about it. What is the abyss? What would be in the abyss that's staring back at you? And that implies that both you and the abyss are capable of seeing and perceiving one another. So what if you were to, I don't know, fucking get a crack and start talking to one another? Yeah. What can the abyss tell us? And so he's saying, you know, you repeat your name enough times, it becomes gibberish. But the name itself hasn't changed. So what is the right interpretation? The name or the gibberish? And I was like, that's terrifying. I don't know exactly what we're talking about, but I don't like that at all. Yeah, I really don't like it, but I also don't get it. Yeah. And James, <laughs> and James Simley is like, okay, dude, well, I'll uh, thanks, cool. I guess. Um, and Arthur says, thank you so much for coming back. I hope you stay longer next time. And James says, coming back, I've never been here before. And Arthur's like, oh, sorry, I just must be something about you. You just, you know. Um, so James sort of goes over. They have like a coffee and donut situation. So he's over there and he starts showing that's a photo the, that's of That's way Mando to get me around. into a cult. Oh, hell yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, the movie's over. He just joins a cult. Uh, he's showing like a photo of a man on his phone. He talks to this guy, this younger man, Garrett. And he's like, oh, sorry, I don't recognize her. But James is like, no, this all seems like exactly what I thought. Um, she and her friends got sucked into this fucking cult. She came here, um, and now she's living here, or she's part of this, and she's run away from home, and now I'm going to have to find her, yeah. you know. So he sneaks upstairs. So he's sneaking into the actual um, institute. Okay. And he finds a long hallway, sort of like, almost like a hangar full of cots, like a, a dorm for the students. Mm -hmm. And in the, the dorm, a broadcasting voice that says, nothing exists. Even if something exists, nothing could be known about it. Ugh, Even if something so can annoying. be known, knowledge cannot be communicated to others. Even if it can be communicated, it cannot be understood. It's like, okay, okay. girl. And then we find a bunch of bald guys uh, praying, staring at the wall at a black poster on the wall. And they're all whispering. So, and here's the thing I wrote. I've been enjoying all this, but we have about an hour left and I'm going to need to get to the That's empty insane. man. Girl, yes. And, because um, again, they've kept it moving, but then I looked at the time, I'm like, uh, we, I, I thought we were, I thought we were Wrapping ramping up. up into it. You know what I mean? So, um, they're staying the black po poster. And I think it's like, they're focusing on the void to try to communicate with the void. They're, yes. they're staring at the abyss, hoping that something will stare back and give them this these thoughts or this information they don't have access to, Right. Um, worth a shot. Yeah, what else are you doing in your time? So he slinks into the archive room and we see a, a like a, a file labeled Manifestation 14. And there's all these files from the um, cult. And then he finds a room in the basement. It looks like an AA meeting. 
And a bunch of people are sitting around in folding chairs in front of a uh, freestanding chalkboard, and they're chanting, from his thoughts come the dreams, from his dreams come the power, from the power comes the bridge, from the bridge comes the man, from the man comes his thoughts. Of course, he, uh, James, as he walk out of the catwalk, immediately, like, kicks a can or something. Yeah. But then everyone, because he's sort of in the shadow, they think it's the empty man. Oh. So they're like, oh, he's here. you're with us, tell us. Allison, then there is a rattle, and then there is a sound. And it implies that they are conjuring the empty man. Right. And then they all lifted their empty bottles and blew, which I thought was a little cheesy, but you got it. You know, we that's what the ritual we've set up. Yeah. They blow the bottles. Suddenly, all the lights turn on, exposing James to the catwalk, and two cult members said, Sir, can you please come with us? And they haul him Is out. Is blowing they throw the bottles the supposed to be, like, analogous to blowing the flute? Yes, okay. I think so. I think there's just, like, conjuring him, like, some, hor- uh, uh, like, a almost like a, a incantation sure. that we're setting up. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly sure why blowing versus like saying saying a limerick. I don't know, but um, uh, so they throw him in the alley, and he sees Garrett, the m- m- young man that he showed the Amanda's photo to, yeah. who's out there smoking. And he's like, "Oh yeah, you'll never get any with anywhere with them like that. They're far out, you know." And he gives James a cigarette. They smoke out in the rain. And he's like, "Look, I did see that girl. I saw Amanda. She was here, but they sent her downstate to the Pontifex camp." Well, they send you to get pre-PR, no. pre-released. It's like the Scientology uh, yeah, semester at C thing. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, C-org. exactly. And he's C-Org. He's like, well, it's the first threshold to achieving singularity. And so James is like, oh, God damn it. She's at some sort of cult camp. Oh. And he says, I could tell you where it's at, though. It's off Route 32. It's in the Mark Twain National Forest near the Merrimax Bridge. And James drives down there and finds a camp elsewhere. Of course, it appears abandoned. He doesn't see anyone. And he ends up kind of sneaking into the office building. So they're all like discreet um, individual cabins. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the records room. Mm-hmm. So he gets in there. He finds Amanda's file. He finds all the other teens' files. Allison, he finds a file. It's bright red compared to the rest of the other manila folders with his name on it. And when he opens it, it's empty inside. Almost like, I don't know, I'm going to put it out here some kind of Empty man of some sort. Not great. Um, and he looks at it and he goes, yeah, okay. Which I did think this uh, this actor had a lot of funny asides. Like, yeah. as are in, like the like the person who is like a real person. Yeah. He did a lot of moments of like, All right. what are we talking about? And this is James Badge Dale, who's from, let's see, he was in, he was in The Gray, 13 Hours, uh, 24, The Departed. A lot of stuff. And he's great in this movie. He's, uh, you know, our grizzled ex-cop who's trying to get to the bottom of things. But is there a bottom to the to the abyss? We'll find to out. Um, he goes into a, another cabin, and they're all filthy and covered in cobwebs. Like, no one's been there forever. And he finds an old charred teddy bear on the ground. Oh, that's he also finds, never chilling. Yeah. <laughs> he also finds a VHS tape called Manifestation 13, and he pops it into the TV. And we see six young men chanting, and we realize this is the incident in the Missouri woods. We're watching video of the guys who all murdered each other, right? And they're chanting, uh, much like we heard in the Institute. They're chanting one another, and then they hear a sound, and they all stop. And then it cuts the static. When it cuts back, it's chaos. We see naked legs, broken glass on the ground, and a shirtless man sort of like seizing and spouting gibberish. Mm -hmm. And they try to put like something on his head, and then we see him frantically getting up, and he's got his hand in what I assume is somebody else's uh, bodily organs. He's, like, sticking his hand. Because I was like, is that his? Did he pull out his own stomach? But I think it's somebody else's. Okay. And he's taking someone else's blood. Yeah. And he's frantically painting the seated man on the wall. 
And in this one, it's a seated man uh, outlined in blood. And then there's sort of like a T-shaped figure over it. It's not a cross or anything, but there's sort of like a little crown or something over Mm. the seated figure. Um, Night has fallen, Allison. And as James leaves the cabin, he hears chanting in the distance. And unlike you and me, he goes towards it. Yeah, it could it be me. Um, yeah, I would be dead sprinting back to the road. Yep. Um, he finds a light in the trees. He follows it, and he sees dozens of cult members all dressed in black dancing around a gigantic fire. And they stop, and they all sort of stand swaying as James approaches, and then they start going counterclockwise. And he's hiding, like, basically in a marsh. Like, he's, yeah. like, among the reeds. And as they run counterclockwise, the fire seems to stretch up to the sky— and above Jim, we see the stars sort of blur. And then he blinks, disoriented, and he turns to leave when the chanting stops entirely. Mm. And when he turns back, the fire is out, and all of the cult members are staring at him. No, that's not good. And then the stars go out, and the sounds of nature cuts out. So it's totally dark and dead silent. And when the sound and light comes back on, the cult has started slowly walking towards him. Mm. And we see him take a step back, and then collectively the cult takes one step forward. He takes no. another step back. They step forward. He says, yeah, no. And then he books it, and he's running. As these cult members start running after him, dead sprinting, screaming, hooting, hollering, like animalistic, chasing him down. Yeah. He gets to his car. Fortunately, he gets inside. Of course, it will not start right away. The cult smashes his windshield. They're tearing the car apart. And he's about to drive away. Uh, we see a cult member like stumbling off the roof. People are flying out. And finally, he's able to turn the car around, get out to the street, and he's screaming, what the fuck was that? And he peels you know, his way back up to St. Louis mm-hmm. as a storm rolls in. He goes to the detective and says, here's everything that happened. And the detective's like, okay, so let me get this straight. You think this vulnerable teenage girl is with the cult. So you went there alone, someone who is not a cop, you took files. You broke into cabins. Do, please do not fuck up this investigation for me. You could have just said you thought she was down there and we could go look. And so he's like yelling at James. And James is like, you don't understand. It's not like something is going yeah. on. Like it's not a normal crime. It's not what you think. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but he said, okay. He gives James a notepad to write down his entire statement. And uh, we see James head over to a security store to stock up. So we see him get like bolt cutters, pocket knives. Like he's got everything. Yeah. You know, he's situated. And he goes over to Nora's house to warn her about what he saw. saw. He's like, I don't know exactly what's happening, but if a man is involved with these people, you're in danger, and I think you should get out of here. Mm-hmm. And he closes all of her curtains, and we see sort of a white van parked on the street. And Nora says, do you think that you're telling me Amanda's with that cult? He's like, yes, I'm so sorry. I actually think the cult killed her friends. And they also, I think, know where you live because he found the files. So it's like, I think they have her address. I think yeah. they, we, we should get out of here. Of course, the phone rings, and she picks it up, and then answers it and hands it to James, and it's just whispering and clicking, like the whispering we've heard, people whispering in each other's ears. And James, to his credit, says, let's get out of here right now. Okay, thank you. Good. Yeah. So they each take their cars to a hotel, and he's basically checking Nora into a hotel, and then he's going to go home. And Nora's outside, like, outside the lobby, and she starts crying. She's like, she's dead, isn't she? And James says, I really don't think so. I don't don't know what's going on, but I don't think she's dead because she would have been dead with her friends. Yeah. And- and James asked Nora, did Amanda ever know about us? Did you ever tell her? And Nora's like, oh, did I tell her about that thing that we don't even talk about? No, I don't think she knew. And she says to James, don't you think we punished ourselves long enough? Of course, Nora and James were lovers. And we cut back to that night. 
we see Allison driving Henry in the car, and we realize we hear Allison asking, "Where were you?" Well, that mm-hmm. night, James was with Nora the night of the crash. Yeah, that's why he wasn't in the car. And I think to her point, it was like we fucked up, but both of us have been punished horribly yeah. by, by the by the cosmos. Like, right? Can't we at least on. just like yeah. be normal? Which also is funny because, like, again, as someone who has like very different opinion of feelings about monogamy, where I was like, I, I mean, yeah, you shouldn't have done that, but like, I don't think you have to like ruin your own life, your whole, like, like, the rest of your entire life because of this one thing. Yes. And believe me, I'm Catholic. I understand the thinking of my family died because I had sex with somebody outside of marriage. I get it. Believe me. <laughs> but that isn't what happened. It's not even what happened in this movie that uh, implies that a supernatural exists. So, yeah. you know. Um, but, you know, obviously he's still torn up about it. And he goes home. He goes to sleep. He wakes up, of course, 3.03 again on the dot. He lights a cigarette and he looks down. The, the He left the bedroom door open. And he sees a figure sit up from the ground in the hallway and no. stand up. It's, of course, a shrouded figure. Of course. Since it's the second day, he is seeing. He's now seeing the empty man. He shuts the door. He screams. And he hears the doorbell ring. And he goes to the door again. Could not be me. Nope. Answers the door. And in the rain is the old charred teddy bear from the camp. Which I took to mean, we know where you We live. know where you are. And we know that you've seen us. Exactly. But I think we're to think... Through that conversation with Nora, he maybe, and this is another thing too of like what we then see him do, which is in the morning he wakes up, he's about to take his pill, he doesn't take it, he puts it back in the bottle, and he puts on his wedding ring. So it's like, is he rejecting pharmaceuticals, which is a very Scientology very thing, Scientology, and putting on his wedding ring like, oh, I can finally let my like to me the wedding thing makes sense. It's like, okay, finally I can move past it and really grieve because I'm not being myself up. Yes, putting the pill back, I'm like, honey, the pill is the not pill the is issue, not I- the problem. And on the screen it reads, day three. And now I have to ask you, Allison, who will survive this film? Who will survive? We got James and Nora, who are really the only ones I care about. I think and then we they'll got, both yeah. survive. Okay, great. And what do you think will happen? Like, what do you think will happen with the empty man? I think what, that what he'll, predict? like, confront the empty man. And, like, be okay, able great. to maybe break... The, the hold over people that he has. Okay, great. Or at least, like, for himself. Okay, fabulous. I like it. Hey, guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. 
That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. All right, so we see James park across the street from the Pontifex Institute and wait and watch to see Garrett come out. And he trails them. And he follows them to a hospital. He walks in the hospital, and he's sort of spying on them, and they go into a room, and they try to shut the curtain, but he can sort of see what's going on. And as he watches, at least six to eight cult members are forming a a circle around a man in a hospital bed. He's unconscious. He has a respirator. And as he's watching, these cult members fall to their knees simultaneously and start praying to this guy in the hospital bed. James sort of hides himself and then follows Garrett back. And when Garrett's friend drops him off, James grabs Garrett, pepper sprays him, and throws him in the back of his car in broad daylight. And I think there is a funny moment where everyone's on their phone so they don't see this happening. Mm -hmm. Like, we see everyone else in the street is, like, looking down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun. Um, However, so he throws Garrett in there and he drives him to an abandoned, uh, like, a warehouse. Like, behind a warehouse, right? Um... And he's like, I'm sorry. I didn't know they were going to ambush you at the camp. I really thought she was there. I didn't know that was all happening. They don't tell me anything. And James says, I don't care about that. Who the fuck is that guy in the hospital? And Garrett says, I don't know his name, but he's like an antenna. He transmits thoughts that we can't get anywhere else. So everyone sort of like goes to him and spends a lot of time with him because he sort of can get us stuff from the noosphere. And, you know, unfortunately that also means that he is in a, unconscious state like he's just sort of like receive he's a receiver he's Mm -hmm. just receiving and playing these messages and um james takes out a gun and he puts it to garrett's head and makes him kneel down says you're gonna say something that makes sense or so help me god i'm gonna kill you i was like thank you thank you thank you so garrett garrett says a lot i don't know if much makes sense but we'll say garrett says look they say that thoughts are transmissible right that their idea of the noosphere is all consciousness but it's not just human consciousness Okay. And that's what they found out is there are other minds out there, other thoughts, minds that are ancient and angry. Mm-hmm. And James says, you all are fucking morons. What are you talking yes, about? This would be my reaction. A hundred percent. And Garrett tells him, you've experienced it too. Dreams, fevers, deja vu. Like you get these flashes from somewhere else. And it kind of can only get to you when you're like vulnerable or sick or guilty. Like you get, and we, obviously we've seen his dreams. Like he's revisiting his his family's death over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's like you, it, it can reach you, but we're trying to cultivate a relationship with him. And then once in a million years, there is the other. And they're like, "What is that?" It's like it, basically they did like well, they don't say the word God, but I took it as like occasionally in the atmosphere you communicate with a God. Okay, you know. And so in order to do that, he needs an empty man, in this case, the guy in the hospital bed, okay. to be the bridge. Okay. So they need a human body for this ancient, incredible intelligence to communicate with human beings. And the point of this, at least according to the cult, it's like he comes to release all boundaries. Like he's going to give us his godlike knowledge so that there will be, we will, we will essentially be like him, you know? And that's what they're saying. Like, there's no reality except for him, which is how people talk about God, I think, sometimes. Yeah, I think like, that that's, like, not so far off from some Yeah, beliefs. but then he describes, he's like, there's no reality except for him, his endless black chaos. And I'm like, well, I don't want just endless chaos. Like, can we just have, like, a nice time? Can we, like, sit in the woods? Yeah. And then I wrote, okay, we need to wrap this up. Oh. Like, it is, we're half an hour to the end, and I'm like, we have got to beep, beep, boop, do this. Ugh. But because then Gary tells him, like, man, when he when we finally get this set up, things are gonna slide, man. It's gonna be a bloodbath. 
And then I'm like, wait, so why would they want that to happen? Like, I understand being like, I want godlike knowledge. Okay, that makes sure, sense. Sure, but why would you but like, w- like hope for and plan for right. mass and death? I, like, what? I don't I know what that accomplishes. Like, maybe it's like the, I don't know. I mean, you see these like evangelicals where it's like yeah. they want the end of the world. So I'm like, oh, is it like the end of the world doesn't know it? You think it's good? So like, oh, we need to bring about this cataclysmic end? Mm-hmm. But that, so that part I was kind of rocky on. But then we look at Garrett, and Garrett has like, it looks like he's having an allergic reaction. Like it's all red around his eyes. And he sees James' nose has started bleeding again, which we saw earlier. He says, yeah. See, you're coming down with him already. You got the, your brain is itching, isn't it? And James is like, You're full of shit. Again, I grew up in San Francisco. I've heard every woo woo horseshit thing that doesn't mean it's real. Tell me where fucking Amanda is. Right. And Garrett says she's on the bridge. And he's like, what bridge? We live in St. Louis. And then Garrett starts laughing and says, don't you get it? There is no bridge. And then James rightfully kicks the shit out of him. Thank you. And just fucking punches in the face. We're all at it. I'll be honest, like, no, bam. And as he's beating Garrett up, Garrett's just laughing and laughing. And he leaves them there. He drives back to the Pontifex Institute. So now it's like nightfall. There's a rainstorm coming in. And he finds, he goes to the file room and he finds the file of the guy in the hospital. Allison, do you know at this point who the guy in the hospital is? No. Think to the beginning of the movie. Um, the first guy who fell in. Yes. It's, well, he, it's the one who survived. The guy who, yeah, the guy who fell in. Yeah, yeah. so it's Paul. Paul. So they actually don't know his name. We know his name. It's Paul. Okay. So he finds this file and, you know, again, like, Everyone, to everyone there, he's like a, a John Doe because, like, the implication is like um, the cult leader found this guy or like communicated with this guy after this happened and then realized what he was. But we don't really get a backstory. This is kind of what I yeah. assume is happening. And then James finds his actual file, which has all the information about him. And literally, there's a, a article like about him as like a kid. It just says growing up in San Francisco, which is so funny because <laughs> he kept saying that. And um. His prescription for his medication, um, his family's death, like in the newspaper, the coupon he used in the Mexican restaurant two days earlier, and photos of his wife and child when they were alive. And she's like, he's like, how would you have this? He also finds a photo of him sitting naked in a chair, a photo he clearly does not remember taking. And he hears Allison's whispering, where were you? Where were you? And then he hears his son's voice say, on the first night he finds you. On the second night, you see him, sort of in, in, the incantation, and James drives to the hospital. And we're on and day trying, three. Day three. So we are we are we're heading towards the end here. So James drives to the hospital and he tries to pump the nurse at the nurse's station for information because the night she's the only one there, and she's like, "Look, I can't tell you any information." But he was admitted to Bellevue twenty three years ago. He's stable. He's not on life support, but he's unresponsive. Five years, uh, you know, he was sent to Bellevue, and then five years later was transferred to Stockholm Health and. The other day he was sent to a private clinic in Cedar Rapids until two years ago, and he was brought here. It's like, well, that's quite a bit for someone who can't tell you much uh, at the hospital. Yeah. But she says, he's a John Doe. I don't know his name. As far as I know, clearly, but clearly he's like an important person. Or he has money in his family or something because he gets a lot of visitors and the bills are always paid, right? So the implication is like the cult is sort of using him yes, as, as a vessel. Antenna, yeah. As a vessel, yeah, to get this information. And she, he, she says, actually, there's, a, there's um, a visitor in there with him now. James looks in the room and we see Amanda sitting on the bed. So Amanda is alive yes. and she's visiting this man. 
And the nurse turns to James and says, and the nurse kind of like, it's like a little like, she's like seductive. And maybe that's not exactly, I'm like, maybe I'm just reading it that way. Sure. But she sort of turns to him and says like, so is he the man you've been looking for? So we sort of understand the nurse also is in on it. Okay. Like she has like a, she that's why she told so much stuff. To James. He goes in and he sees that it is Amanda. And he asks her, well, who is this? What is his name? And she says, I don't know either. He transmits and we receive. Um, meanwhile, James steps out to call Nora to be like, I found her. I can let you know. You know, like, don't freak out. And Amanda's trimming and shaving the man's beard, like taking care of him like you would of someone yeah. who is unconscious, you know, but just tending to him. Allison, when Nora picks up the call and James says, I found Amanda, Nora says, who is this? Allison, Nora has no idea who James is. What? He hangs up. And Amanda has to do, this actress has to do a lot of heavy lifting here at the end. And I really, because like she she has to lay it all out for us. And I really appreciate everything Some, yeah, she's somebody, given. Somebody has to shoulder this burden. and Yeah. Uh, Sasha Frolova. Shout out to her. She, uh, she here we go. Because she's going to try to land this plane, bitch. Okay. <clears throat> Sweet. He's obviously distraught. And she tells him, basically, we need a new transmitter. A body can only handle this so much power for so long. He's been, you know, we know that he's been like this since 1995. Right. Clearly, the cult's been drawing for him. Then we finally flash back to our boy Paul in the cave in case we didn't pick it up, but we get it, right? And she says, there's actually a 500-year gap between this transmitter and the last one. So presumably, the last person who was in that cave, right? Okay. And it's like, we don't want to risk going without a transmitter, so we did something risky. We made one. James is freaking out. He's like, you're fucking crazy. This is insane. Yeah. But then he also starts to grab his head and he's screaming and he falls to the ground. And she's like, you know, I thought, you thought I didn't know about your, you and my mother, but I knew because I wrote it, James. I wrote it into the script when we created you. And she says, when was your birthday? And he says, it's November 3rd. She's like, no, no, your birthday, your actual birthday was three days ago when we conjured you into being. Huh? You are all, you are our tulpa. You are our empty man. And she says to him, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? You could say it. And it's obviously the death of his yeah. wife and son. And he's like, we could only create you through grief, sorrow, or guilt. But then I was also like, well, yeah, but it's not real, girl. Like, I was like, right. it's not connected to reality, but I guess maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah. And she tells James, wouldn't it just be easier to let go? Because if you allow yourself to be emptied out, then you don't have to worry about any of this. Like, it's all gone, and you just become a vessel for... The, this entity that we're communicating with right. beyond space and time. Um, and we see sort of this flash of James when he was standing on the catwalk uh, on the Institute. We see him look up and he realizes that he was the empty man coming into the room. Like he is both seeing himself on the catwalk and that he himself is emerging as the empty man. Okay. And everyone blows their bottles and James drops his red file and he turns and he runs down a hallway and mm -hmm. he sees the chair where obviously he was uh, taking photos of him nude. And beyond it, we see a gi the giant shrouded figure, mm -hmm. obviously the skeleton from the cave in Bhutan. It emerges from the wall as if it's the skeleton emerging from the wall, cloaked in a shroud and chases James through the basement of the Institute. Okay. And as he turns, the lights click off after him one by one until the figure lunges out of the darkness and in this, we we they, I think they did a great job of not showing you too much, because when the figure figure lunges out, it now has flesh. Okay. 
but you don't see it directly, but what you do see, it has tentacles and sort of like a lamprey eel mouth. And that's when I was like, oh, it's H.P. Lovecraft. Yes. It's, it's an elder god. It's something from beyond time made manifest. We just saw its skeleton. It is like this. Yes. It's a monstrous godlike creature. And it holds James' mouth open, and unfortunately, it starts pumping black goo from inside its, like, head cavity into his mouth. I love the goo. And I guess it's like that's him clearing him out. Yes. Sort of a black goo enema from, oh, sure. from beyond space and time, you know. Uh, James awakens in the basement of the Institute and runs down the alleyway, still somehow convinced he'll escape. Um, and we see finally the full story of, like, the night of his family's death. We see him at the funeral. So the, it's the night of the fun- of Nora's husband's funeral. So the implication to me is that these two families were friends. Mm-hmm. Nora's husband dies. Mm-hmm. He, she and uh, James were already having an affair. Okay. We see, um, we also like cut to the grieving families of all the kids who died in the high school, the mm-hmm. grieving family of all the kids, uh, the people who died in Bhutan uh, with, with Paul. Um, and he, we see James run to his home and he smashes open the door. But of course, when he opens it, there's nobody living there. He doesn't actually live there. It's just a house they put in his mind. Okay. And then we see at the end of the hallway, there's light coming from underneath his bedroom door. Mm-hmm. And in his flashback, we see James stay with Nora at the house and send Allison and Henry home, you know, ahead of him okay. in the snow. And as they're driving, a deer darts out in front of him and Allison swerves, sending the car off a bridge, flying to their death. And you do see Nora and James fucking for a second. And I thought it was funny because she's wearing like the sexiest, like like um, thigh-high black silk yeah, stockings, yeah. like matching nighty and bra. It's like, I maybe somebody's wearing that to their husband's funeral. I think you're barely getting out the fucking no, door. No, I don't think so. You should be so. wearing the most comfortable underwear possible so you can get through so. the fucking day. They do have like, ooh, I'm going to wear heels. It's like, that is- Putting on thigh that's like, highs to grieve. Uh, honey, that is, that's a that's a third date and that's if you're lucky. This is the idea that like, she is mourning her husband who died. Yeah. And this is what she's wearing. I thought was very funny. And also, like, how Catholic to be, or, like, how, like, Christian to be, like, the greatest sin, you had sex with this lady, you right. know. It's like, there's a, a, a God who's vomiting black goo in right. your mouth. and like, making don't, people don't kill themselves. Don't beat yourself up about it. Like, yeah. Also, none of this actually happened. That was my problem at the end. I'm like, okay, but, like, he, wh- why did you make him go through this? But, so, finally, he, uh, James goes to the hospital, and he lifts his gun, and he shoots the man in the hospital bed, he empties the clip in his head, like fucking blows his brain, blood sprayed everywhere. And the blood sort of forms the shape of the seated man and sort of like the little T on top of his head is just part of the structure of the hospital bed. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, I guess we were leading up to this. Like he was seeing it and and it was, then he made it manifest, I suppose. Like the idea was put in his head. Anyways, he kills this guy and um, he steps out of, uh, the hospital room, and it turns out everyone who works there turns and looks to him. They're also in yes, on it. of course. And we hear a, a low, uh, whoo, uh, of course, across to the bottle as everyone who is still there drops their knees to pray to him. And we end with a whisper, you transmit, we receive. The empty man, Allison. Whoa. Um, I did want to talk about some questions mm-hmm. I had. I have some as well. First of all, so does that mean he's now in a coma? Like, he's is he going to be in a hospital bed? I would assume. He ha- but also, he's not real. So, do he, like, the other guy, Paul, I guess, was essentially real. had to be hollow. Yeah, he was real. So he had something inside. 
But it is like, so you had to create a tulpa and you had to give that tulpa grief and pain or whatever just to give you, you the ability to create him. But but um, that seems mean. I don't think you should, if you just create a tulpa, don't give him a sad backstory where his wife and kid died. Yeah, why does he have to have like a lot of guilt and shame associated with a, the a terrible event? Like, I don't know. I, I don't fully Especially sexual shame. I was like, this is yeah. very, yeah, this is very, it's funny. Um, I did really enjoy it in the end, but there are definitely things at the end I'm like, all right, I'll allow it. Okay. So he was never real? He was never real. But, like, was his family real? That's why I think it was like, is Amanda real? Well, that's the thing. Like, like, his family wasn't real. His family wasn't real. The family was not real. Okay. But Nora was real because he called Nora. Right. So Amanda, maybe Amanda was real. And Nora was real. But he was a tulpa. But, like... Yeah, I guess, like, who's real is, like, a, a a lingering question that I'll have for this film. Right, and then it's, like, and I think this is the same thing, it, like, a question I have about Hereditary, where we get to the end, if you haven't seen Hereditary, oh, go watch it, or don't, listen to our episode, it's, like, so what's the game plan here, right? It's, like, okay, so the cult wins. In this case, like, the cult wins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... We so think, they've got him for a couple hundred years to right or 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 twenty. It's like a little unclear. Right, like, yeah, is a tulpa hat? Does, he, does it live till eighty again? Is it like a like, normal it, lifespan for a human? And it's like you just get what you get out of him. And then also, it's like, do the cult and then members you have to make another one? I, and I guess it's like are the cult members because Garrett said it's going to be a bloodbath. So I'm like, okay, so, so I guess the cult members are just point? fine with that. But also. You're still, they're human, so they could be killed or, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, again, I, I don't need to know all the answers, but at the end of it, I was like, huh, okay, all right. Certainly um, something. Yeah, what, what are some fatal mistakes you think were made mm-hmm. in the movie The Empty Man, Allison? Fatal mistakes. I mean, in general, summoning. Yeah. Like, when you yeah, fell yeah. down that crevasse, like... Don't touch anything. Don't blow on anything. Don't. And also, if you're Greg, tell the your your other two right away. Yes. You don't see him say anything. And I would be like, hey, Paul aside, I saw a gigantic weird skeleton right. down there. It's like, even if it's not something you guys are going to sort through, like maybe someone else should know about it. Right. Yeah, just send someone down there just to make sure. I guess it's some sort of elder god that got stuck down there but still exists in the newosphere. And, um, you know, it's not for us to figure out, obviously. No. But I guess they could have told someone, but of course they didn't make it off the mountain. But also then it's like, well, so who found Paul? Because Paul, I guess maybe Paul just walked down the mountain. Like yeah, if he was right. Like I guess empty he just kind something. of like got himself back to somewhere that then they were like, but like when did he go like in comatose? Com- yeah. Like, yeah. when was that? And then, like, you see, um, like, on the Wikipedia, you see that Arthur uh, Parsons, basically, there's the implication is, like, he was in a cave in Jordan. You know, like, right. that was part of it. But it's like, did he talk to the empty man, or was this, right. like, was Paul lucid for a while, and he met Paul while Paul was still, like, alive and, and then, talking? And then, like, turned him into the empty man. But, right. like, also, so it does he- mean. Did that? I don't know. But that does make me want to read the uh, comic book. Because yes. as a, you know, as we said, like, um, because they, they do talk about it, like, oh, it's communicable. But it's, to me, it was much more of like a, 
cult, like a religious, mm-hmm. like, oh, religious mm-hmm. ideas are the things that are issue and they, they we spread and like if you believe in it versus they talk about it more like it's an actual disease or right. conceptualizing it as a disease, which I also think is a very interesting way to think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe it's both. Maybe it's just sort of like a way to depict that that on screen. And I thought it was good, again, too long, so but long. I did enjoy it. Yeah. If you do read the, bo- the comic book, I think um, we should do like an update. Absolutely. So if you end up doing that, because I would be interested to know like what, what clarity we could find from, you know, another medium for the story, because it is interesting, but I'm still confused. Also, I wanted to shout out because a couple of people sent us information about uh, the shadow puppets. Oh, yes. Um, from, uh, oh, dang it, hang on. The shadow puppets from um, Candyman. Candyman. Um, boop, boop, boop. Let me try to find it. Here we go. Yeah, a couple people, Serena on Twitter, they give her sending it. Um, and to everyone who sent it, I uh, always want to shout them out. It's yes, uh, thank it was you. a collaboration with Manual Cinema, a Chicago-based design company who fo- focused on integrating practical theater elements into the silver screen. And they're the ones who worked on the shadow puppetry, which I thought was beautiful. And I think, you know, we uh, in New York, or sorry, in L.A., they have the Bob Barker Marionette Theater, mm-hmm. which I've never been to. But I really have a healthy respect for puppetry. Mm-hmm. And other kinds of arts that I don't know how to do and I don't know much about. So I think it's a good example of like, well, I didn't know a damn thing about it, but I'm really glad that this exists. Yeah. And I appreciate everyone sending it to us. And if you have any interest in this kind of art form, yes. please look it up. Um, we just really appreciate it. That was very nice yeah, to send it to us. That. Uh, you know we're we, you. you know we're dumb as hell, yep. so we appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, any help we could get, we absolutely need. <laughs> <laughs> um, absolutely. Um, so yeah, uh, where would you put this week on the spooky scale, mm. Allison? A spooky scale. This feels like a six for me. I feel like a six feels like a lot of scary stuff, a lot of eeriness. Um, you know, cult stuff is always scary because you're learning rules to something. Um, but I think the confusing elements kind of take away a little bit from the scariness. You know what? I'm going to go six as well. Yeah, it feels like uh, a real really, six. Yeah, I really Spookiness. appreciate all the elements. I do, for me, the the two long monologues about the cult. I, I get it. I get what we had to do. It is a comic book. Like, it is, uh, you know, you it is an adaptation. How do you a- adapt uh, the this whole worldview? Mm-hmm. I'm very empathetic to that. Um, but yeah, I lo- the beginning, fucking dynamite when they're on the mountain. Loved it. Yeah. Um, everyone did it is phenomenal. I thought it was beautifully directed. And I loved a, a lot of like um very compelling uses of sound, like repetition yeah. of sound. And um, you know, hey, look, I I I don't need everything to make total sense. No. You know what I mean? And by the end of it, I thought, I'm glad I saw this. So great. Um so well, that was it. Well. And uh thank you for joining us, you guys. Yes. Uh and as always, um please, please keep it spooky. Don't forget to follow us at Ruin Podcast and Crooked Media for show updates. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a review. Ruined is a Radio Point and Crooked Media production. We're your writers and hosts, Hallie Kiefer and Allison Leiby. The show is executive produced by Alex Box, Sabrina Fonfetter, and Houston Snyder, and recorded and edited by Kat Iosa. From Crooked Media, our executive producer is Kendra James, with production and promotional support from Ari Schwartz, Kyle Sieglin, Julia Beach, Caroline Dunphy, and Awa Okalati.
Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 